Welcome to episode 25 of the Civil War Breakfast Club, joined by my co-host, the Mad Queen from Kin Cardine, Mary. I am just Darren. And good evening to you, Mary Mary. How are you doing today? Good evening to you more than just Darren. Ooh, wow. <laughs> very flattering. Very flattering. So how are things? How have you been? How's your week? Good. We have a lot of snow here right now, which is... no. Oh crazy but no it's been a good week we are into february now which is pretty i heard yeah (laughs) hey you know don't worry about that snow like i've said before if the snow keeps up it won't come down so just keep that in mind okay here i am we just get rain we did a lot of rain so we've uh, had a big storm coming so we got a lot of rain so good to see you good to see everybody we had a great live over the weekend i thought yeah we had a good one talking about the post game wrap of the Joe Wilkes Booth, Asia Booth story with, yeah. with our friend Lisa Samuel was on, which I thought was a great podcast. It's always no, it fun talking about talking about JWB and the gang. I'm sure we'll be hearing about him later on. Today, we're going to stay on the dark side, Mary. Back in the Western Theater again, which was where we were a couple weeks ago in the Carolinas. That's true. That's true. Yep. Oh, was that really West, though? Carolinas. It's considered Western that? Theater, I think. It's in the West and East. And oh, are we going to get into this fucking debate? <laughs> oh, well, you might want to. I know you're good at math, but I mean, geography too. <laughs> I can do it all. Before we get too far, we do need to tell these fine people what we're drinking tonight. Oh, absolutely. You want to go first? Yeah, I am drinking sparkling peach beverage. Wow, <laughs> I'm drinking hard. sparkling water out of my John Reynolds mug. Because John Reynolds was stationed at Fort Moultrie. My name is a play on tonight, Fort Moody, which may yeah, or the, may the, not the, describe the, how I was leading up to Yeah, the, the pre-record was a real <laughs> thing, by the way. Uh, and I'm drinking Acadia Spring Water for my Fort Sumter glass. You might ask why we're drinking water. It's because we're doing the whole dry February thing. But, oh my God, can you believe that? We are going to be on the wagon for the month. And so we're going to do that. And so that's what we're doing. So let's see how this one goes. But we'll see. <laughs> and you're Fort Some Jerk. For some jerk, because that's what I was apparently before we started recording. Oh, you fucker. Are you fine? Really? Okay. We're fine. What's wrong? Nothing. That's not how it went. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, we're not. No, no. No. I'm going to secede from this conversation and we can talk specifically about the subject of the night, which is secession. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to basically talk about some of the issues that came up in this wonderful country of ours that led to, unfortunately, the Civil War. And we're going to talk about pretty much right up to Fort Sumter. We're not going to go into Sumter. We'll save that for another day. And we're going to talk specifically mm-hmm. about the relations between the North and the South and what happened. I think it's a good discussion to talk yep. about. We're not going to get into too, too much of the politics part of it, but just some of the stories and some of the things that happened. Yep. And then we'll end up talking a lot about Charleston, which is yeah. one of my favorite cities. Mary, it's by the one way, of Charleston. my favorite cities too. It's absolutely beautiful. I've only been there once, but I really hope to get back there a lot once I can travel again. I do have a mm-hmm. quote I found to start us off though, from 1860, from the Charleston Mercury from November the 3rd. And I thought it summed up pretty well what was happening. The issue before the country is the extinction of slavery. The southern states are now in the crisis of their fate. And if we read aright the signs of the times, nothing is needed for our deliverance, but that the ball of revolution be set in motion. I pick that quote because the ball of revolution was not just set in motion in 1860. It had been going for quite some time towards Mm -hmm. secession. You and I were talking about earlier today how it's kind of like when you look at the Civil War battles. When we discussed Antietam, you know, we talked about how Antietam just doesn't happen. There has to be things that take place before for that ultimately to happen. Like South Mountain, Second Manassas and all that. Secession and the lead up to the Civil War is is very, very similar to that. It was like a bunch of dudes went down the battery down in South Carolina and Charleston I just fire shit at the fort out there. There's a yeah. reason why I did. And it was a long time. The mid-1800s at that point, relations between the North and the South was really going downhill quick. 
And slavery was a big part of it. The issue with slavery as well as some other cultural and economic issues and probably all the way back to the Constitution. Well, you mm-hmm. can go that far back. If you really track it all the way back to the economy part of it, you can really trace it back to the 1828 Tariff Act. This was an act that people in the South called the Tariff of Abomination. So right off the bat, you know, it must have been pretty brutal. So what it basically was, the North needed money to build a bunch of canals in the North. What they wanted to do was to build some canals to help benefit the Northern and Northwestern industries. And they needed money. They didn't have any. So what they basically did under the John Quincy Adams administration, they basically enacted this tax on European-made goods and basically to pay for it. And what they really did is they jacked these taxes, like 50% tax on some of these European values. So, so really, it was really bad as far as the cost. The South saw this tariff basically as just ridiculously I think the quote was ghastly lopsided. It was used basically for buying goods from Europe. But the South was, that's where they were buying a lot of their stuff from. They were buying a lot of their goods from Europe versus the North because it was cheaper. It's like when you go out and buy your, your cheap your Labatt's Blue instead of the good stuff because it's cheaper, <laughs> Ew, right? So, God, I have not drank that since I was 15. Oh and I just God. admit it when I started drinking. Oh, is the drink at age 15 again? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. This at least this one. This is going to go right to the Goddard Police Department. This drops, but they were buying their goods that was much much cheaper than buying it from the north. And now they're going to have to pay a lot more. And they took that as a really an insult on their economy. England and France were also pissed, and they retaliated by reducing the amount of cotton they were going to be buying from the south. It's a classic trade war. The south thought it was going to basically bankrupt their economy, and they they just felt that the people in the north this is they were really hurting their economy. John C. Calhoun, you may have heard of him, Mary, he highly regarded politician and overall fun lover, that guy. He basically said that his constituents would not obey any federal laws that wasn't in the state's best interest. So he's basically saying if the laws the Fed is passing doesn't benefit us in South Carolina, we ain't going to pay attention to it. And he was so popular. He basically had a lot of the other states kind of jumped on board and said, we don't have to do it either. And he also floated the idea that any states could secede if they didn't want to be part of the union anymore. Mm -hmm. Some felt that Calhoun's statement was really the beginning of that North-South divide. A lot of people feel it was the, the root of the war. Andrew Jackson, he later would have to send warships to Charleston Harbor to enforce this tariff act. So what it really did was it created a real animosity going forward with what was going on. In the state, the, the country was already in a bad place anyway. Missouri Compromise had just taken place a couple of years before. So simmering was the slavery issue. And that was going to be really was going to be what was going to light the powder keg on an environment of North versus South animosity anyway. Yeah. And that really got it going good. It did. And, you know, you mentioned Calhoun from South Carolina. South Carolina is really the one that is leading the charge in this. And that is because they had, I think, by percentage, the highest population of slaves in their state. There was 47% of families in South Carolina at the time of secession in 1860 that owned at least one slave. Ooh, so we're talking... Talk. Yes, math. I don't know. Maybe I got that wrong. Mary McClellan. I wonder why, I was wondering why you were again. counting your fingers, but it's okay. <laughs> um, so, wow. but you mentioned the Missouri Compromise, which was put in place in 1820 under President Monroe, and it admitted Missouri to the Union as a slave state, but it prohibits slavery elsewhere in the north of the 36th, 30th parallel. I'm probably not saying that right because I'm not going to. 36th, 30th degree parallel. Okay, well, I'm. I'm a Civil War nerd, not a. Um, but you forgot the most important part of the compromise, Mary. They allowed Maine in. Yes. It's a free state. I thought this was oh, oh, your opportunity. Oh, okay, oh, there you got it. Oh, it's home know. state. 
<laughs> no, Thomas Jefferson, he's still alive at the time the Missouri Compromise comes in, and he believes that it's going to lead to the destruction of the Union. And he said that it filled him with terror. I considered it at once as the knell of the Union, a geographical line coinciding with a marked principle and held up the angry passions of men, which will never be obliterated and every new irritation will mark it deeper and deeper. The next irritation in this, I believe, is going to be the Compromise of 1850. Oh, grumpy TJ. Yeah. But... <clears throat> But, you know, all these things that were coming up, though, you know, you've talked about the divide and flame by, you know, the other thing that was really getting them, we're, we're going to get to the 1850 thing. We'll talk mm-hmm. about that in a second. But the other thing that really got them going, too, was this abolitionist movement in the North. A group of people in the North, they were condemning slavery as a moral. They were doing all that. By then, by the 1820s, all the northern states had abolished slavery, but it was still a mainstay of the southern economy. They became the abolitionists that is increasingly mil- uh, militant as the years went on through the mid 1800s. They established the Underground Railroad to, for, you know, for the slaves to escape north. We're going to talk about the Fugitive Slave Act here in a bit, but that came out of the 1850 thing as well. But they basically were looking ways to circumvent that. The other thing that was going on too was you started to see the beginning of these slave rebellions, right? You had mm-hmm. the one in Haiti and in Jamaica. Yep. You know, you had the Nat Turner slave uprising in Virginia in 1831, right? 1831 made popular culture too. You had Uncle Tom's Cabin written by Harry Beecher Stowe, and it really fired up the masses in the North about the cruelty of slave life. You know, and this that's coming around, it's in the midst of all this is going on. We talk about the Compromise of 1850. It's really something that to really skate tight around because there was, depending on where you were, there was always that tension. There was always that, always that feeling that somebody was trying to be screwing somebody over. You can see the country going in a bad place. And to quote Jefferson, to your point, he saw, he was probably more of a visionary about what he saw going forward with some of these things, some of these issues. Yeah, right? he definitely did see that. And the Compromise of 1850 was actually introduced by Henry Clay also known as the Great Compromiser. He owned slaves, but he was not an ardent supporter of slavery, which I can't wrap my mind around that. You don't support it, but you own them. I was like, okay. And he he said, no man is more sensible to the of the evils of slavery than I am, nor regrets them more. So Clay's initial proposal for the bill induces a lot of violence. That's what he's trying to stop. And this is done to the point where Henry S. Foote of Mississippi points a pistol at Senator Thomas Hart Benton of Missouri after they ha- he has an argument with Millard Fillmore. This thing, we're going to talk about this, this Compromise of 1850 also leads to something called the 1850 Nashville Convention, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. The bill included was introducing California as a free state, defining Texas border, establishing New Mexico and Utah as official territories, and finally banning the slave trade in the District of Columbia in exchange for a new fugitive slave law. Right. And that fugitive slave law was the one that was really came out of it. Yeah, California coming as a free state, allowing Utah and New Mexico in. It was kind of the, the byproduct of the Mexico War, the way because they had this mm-hmm. extra land and they didn't know what the hell to do with it. So it's like, well, we got to divide this up. The other thing, too, was you had to look at that balance in Congress of slave versus non-slave state. When you're voting, they didn't want to bring in too many slave states or too many non-slave states, depending where you're from, because it's going to upset the overall balance in Congress. It's like having a a Republican, Democrat in the Senate today. You always keep that number. You're Mm -hmm. always looking at that number. This is how it was with slaves and non-slave states. So the Fugitive Slave Act basically required Northerners to help the South reclaim escaped slaves. As you can imagine, it was very unpopular. In the north, among the abolitionists, the southern people loved it, but it was part of the overall compromise. And but again, it's in the midst of everything going on. So, mm-hmm. like we mentioned before about Uncle Tom's Cabin, that book is released a couple of years afterwards, right? You know, it basically had 
that negative impact. The other things that were going on in the 1850s must not a good time, Mary. Okay, no. I'll tell you. Because you also have the Dred Scott case in 1857 hit. Yep. Okay. Supreme Court said that the slave wasn't a citizen or a person, an inferior, and, and it had no rights that a white man needs to respect. And so all this stuff is, is, is basically spilling out. A couple of years later, you got John Brown's raid. All of that stuff going on, you can see the fuse getting lit. You harken back to what John C. Calhoun said, basically saying, look, if you don't like it, you can just leave. Yeah. Right? He's like he's like that guy at the bar. You don't like it? Go. Just go. Yeah. Right? That's what this is in the back of their mind. Because he's a very popular politician at the time. Now, this is years after he's in his mainstay, obviously. His words still resonate with a lot of these people. John Brown mentioned him real quick. We're not going to get into this whole thing over Harper's Ferry, but he, you know, he tries to organize that slave rebellion yep. by seizing the federal army at Harper's Ferry. Ends up getting caught by Robert E. Lee and, uh, and Jeb Stewart. He's executed, but he's going to be a martyr in the North. And the soldiers are going to sink John Brown's body throughout the war. Mm-hmm. He's a villain in the South. But you know what it does, though? It scares the piss out of the people in the cell that this could happen, right? They start to create their militias in the state, in Virginia, in these places, to protect themselves from slave uprisings. These individual militias are the ones that eventually will become the Confederate Army. That's the beginning of the Confederate Army, as you can see it going back to the John Brown thing. So as you emerge in the late 1850s, you can see the chasm going. So as you're starting to see some new political parties and some old political parties Mm -hmm. starting to split, though. Can't think straight for some reason tonight. Um, the you know why? You've had too much water. Slow down. <laughs> the compromise of 1850s said, said, like Darren has named off all the stuff that is happening in the 1850s. The, one of the first things that happens, though, as a result of this 1850 compromise, and because Clay is like, if you don't like it, get out. There's a group of nine slave states that meet in Nashville, June of 1850. They talk about the possibility of seceding. They decide not to at that point. But then after the Compromise of 1850 is officially passed a group of extremists. So the fire eaters meet in Nashville to talk about secession. The one thing we got to do before we finish the 1850s, move on to the 1860s, is we got to talk about Stephen Douglas and the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, right? He doesn't like the Compromise of 1850, Stephen Douglas. And he's going to ride this horse all the way until the 1860. He wants to basically repeal it. He's a big election guy. He wants to let the public decide. So what he wants to do is he wants to let all the states coming into the union vote to decide if they want to be a slave state or they want to be a non-slave state. He supports a bill to repeal the Missouri Compromise. And and it becomes a huge talking point for the rest of that decade. Big part of the Lincoln-Douglas Senate race in 1858. Mm -hmm. And it's going to create, again, in that area of that that Kansas-Nebraska area where all the steak and shakes and all the porn porn places (laughs) are out there. In churches, <laughs> but what it's gonna what it's what it's gonna do too? It's gonna create a lot of stuff that goes on. Now, real quick, about Kansas, right? At Kansas, eighteen fifty-five, there's tensions starting to build in Kansas, but it's not about slavery. Okay, it's about Northerners coming down to Kansas and taking land. It's a new area. The people of Missouri think it's theirs, but people of the North, you know, New York and Connecticut, and other horrible places. They want to come down and they want to stake a case to their land. So really what the issue is ideally is about them settling land. This is all going on and they're, they're basically fighting over who gets what, these people. Mm-hmm. So John Brown, here, here there he is. He's going to come down. So this is before Harper's Ferry. So he's going to enter the issue and he's going to come down and he's going to kill five pro-slavery settlers called the Patawatomi Massacre. 
say that one five times quick. Okay, this is May of 1856. And what that's going to basically do, it's going to put all the focus on these slave things again on a, t- a powder keg that's already lit in Kansas. Now, admittedly, it wasn't always wasn't specifically just about the slavery issue, but you know what it did? It put the national focus on it, right? Mm-hmm. And it gave them the nickname Bleeding Kansas. Yeah. And it really became the focal point nationally of the North-South controversy. It really led into the election of 1856, too. Yeah. And the other thing that Bleeding Kansas does is it leads to the caning of Charles Sumner by Preston Brooks on May 22nd, 1856, after Sumner gave an anti-slavery speech in which he denounces popular sovereignty, which actually Douglas had been a big proponent of. And he described Bleeding Kansas as the rape of a virgin territory, compelling it to hate to the hate embrace yeah. of slavery. If I could he talk to the speech, the crime against Kansas. So right yeah. off the bat, you know what it's about. Good Massachusetts man, Charles Sumner gets whooped upside the head with a cane by Preston Brooks. May May of 1856, and so now you're seeing you know violence right in the capital, right inside the Senate for A lot of Southerners, after the fact, they're mailing Preston Brooks new canes because they apparently yeah. broke his cane. All the stuff going on is causing a real, real strife. You know, 1856 is going to be a big year too, is because it's going to be an election year. So what's going to happen then is you're going to have this election now, not really focusing now on the slavery issue. We talked before about the Tariff Act and how the South and the North and how slavery and how what a big part of the economy was. But slavery was a big part of the, the Northern economy too. Because they mm-hmm. had to sell the cotton, right? Exactly. You, had to, yep. you had to deal with it. The Republicans are going to come out. There's a new party. They're going to come out and they're going to condemn this new Kansas-Nebraska Act and the expansion of slavery. They're going to run a guy named John Fremont. You've heard of John Fremont. Mm-hmm. And he's going to go up against James Buchanan, another fun lover, by the way, okay, from the Democratic Party. Isn't he the um, only bachelor to be in the White House? I think so. Not to spoil the surprise, but he does win. But there are rumblings at that point that if if Fremont wins, that's going to lead to secession already. 1856 doesn't even go to 1860. Millard Fillmore, as you mentioned earlier, Mary, he actually claimed that a Republican victory would lead to secession. He just flat out said it, right? Buchanan does win. And he basically, what does he do right off the bat is he urges Kansas to be a slave state. Now, the problem with that is they voted and they didn't want to be a slave mm-hmm. state. So it led to a split in the Democratic Party. Okay. So you basically had this new Democratic Party that was going to be split between the Northern Democrats, which is led by Stephen Douglas, uh, and then the Southern Democrats by John Breckinridge. And they're going to ultimately split the nomination going forward, which is going to lead to the 1860 election, which is going to be really what sets the whole thing off. Yeah. Yeah. It is the 1860 election that is kind of the catalyst for for all this to come ahead. And that's because in the 1860 election, you have Abraham Lincoln running. Right. And he was already on the national stage from 1858 mm-hmm. when you're a senator from Illinois. So he was already there. He had the reputation of someone in the South who was going to basically end slavery just because the, the talk he had, the debates he had with Douglas. Um, and so when he is going to win, it's going to set up a lot of things, but it's interesting, but it was that debate, the fight in the Democratic Party that led to the split between Douglas and Breckinridge that really paved the way because that split the Democratic vote. Lincoln wins by 39% of the vote, doesn't carry one Southern state, and he still wins. It's going to lead to secession from South Carolina that's going to lead to it. But South Carolina, we got to talk about South Carolina. Well, South Carolina is an interesting state. Mm-hmm. Okay, with well, just the way it is, they were a state that clearly was not ready for secession, despite the fact that in 1850 they were ready for secession. Yeah, they didn't seem to spend a lot of time preparing for it. So it's like you, you're talking about your big plans, but you just don't do it, right? <laughs> Fucker, you know. And so, same deal, I'll talk no action, 
queen of Kim Cardine. Mm. So it must have been your former yeah, relative. Form we'll see how that goes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So before 1865, okay, or pre-1860 actually for that matter, in South Carolina, the role of governor was not like a real governor. It was just a ceremonial position. You were appointed by the state legislature. You didn't get voted by the popular vote. You had very little power. Not to ins- insult you Canadians up there by any stretch of imagination, but I picture her to be the, like the queen. Okay? Yeah. You've heard Queen Elizabeth? She's mm. up there. Have you heard her? <laughs> She's but, our figurehead. Um, she is. She's on your money, right? That you can't yeah. tear, by the way. <laughs> okay. But so she's there, but it's a figurehead. Parliament runs the government, right? Yeah. Just like South Carolina, same type of type of situation. And so the governor of South Carolina is a guy named Francis Pickens. That's his name. Okay. He's the son of a former governor of South Carolina. He's also the son of a U.S. Revolutionary War veteran. He's going to be governor. Now, one thing he does get to do though, and this is part of the original deal with governor, he's a figurehead, but he gets to control the state militia. That's the one job he has. So if you're in charge of the state militia, when stuff's starting to go, that's a pretty good thing to have. Pickens is also, by happenstance, Mary, he's the governor of guess who? John C. Calhoun. Mm-hmm. So here we go, right? Yeah. So his role is becoming important. So we're going to go back and talk about some of the forts. But December 14th, 1860, about six days before secession, okay, they start talking about these forts, right? Fort Moultrie is the big one. Yeah. Okay, which we both have been there. Actually, yep. one of us has been to Fort Sumter. Well, the boat wasn't running that day for no, some I, reason. It's okay, you missed out on that one. That was a good time. Well, hopefully, you know? I'll get there post COVID. Yes, we'll, we'll see someday. Who knows? Mm. South Carolina, when they do secede, this goes back to 1850, that, that party of nine we talked about. They were thinking eventually, if, if there ever was a secession, and there was rumors that they were going to secede, those, those, that was always going. Mm-hmm. But if they seceded, they were, they were, the hope was that all these other states would follow and they would create this Confederate nation of slave states, which is kind of what happened, right? Ironically, that did happen, but South Carolina for about a month was their own country, right? So what does that do for old Francis Pickens, who was a figurehead? Now he's a head of state. Oh, yep. Talk about waking up and finding yourself on third base, Mary. He's a head of state, so he's now a national head. And so he's the executive who has to deal with President Buchanan. He's the one who gets to make that deal. So he goes to Buchanan over this issue of forts. Now, it's interesting the way this, the whole thing was. The land the forts were owned was owned by the state of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. They leased them to the federal government. So in that mind, they're ours. That was what they're going to hang their hat on, right? So the, the focus was Fort Moultrie in Charleston Harbor. And it, off a place called Sullivan's Island, Mary, which is really, yeah. really pretty. There's a cool bar called Dunleavy's there. It's a Boston bar. It's all Patriots and Red Sox nice. stuff. Everywhere. It's really, really cool. So there you go. If you're in the area, they'll treat you well. Just wear a socks hat. But even at the time, it's a snooty little place. It's big mansions. But even back then, it was a, a real summer community. That's where people yeah. went. It was a popular tourist attraction. Do you know in 1827 who was stationed there? It was Edgar Allan Poe. Interesting. Okay. I didn't know that. Here's one. Do you know? Here's one for you, Fincheroo. Do you know what his title was? What his rank was? Sergeant Major. Sergeant Major. <laughs> Deal with that man, Sergeant Major. Sergeant okay. Major Poe. He was. He wrote a story called The Gold Bug, if you're into Poe. Yeah. That was about Sullivan's Island. So he did that, as I digress. But the military at that point in 1860s was really, really small. Most mm-hmm. of the army was set out west. Most of the officers lived in this fort with their families. Nothing was going on. I mean, it was like yeah. it was basically. There's like what, like 90 troops, 90 federal troops? Something like that. Something yeah. Like it's it was a there, very, very small number. It was not exactly a high tension type place, despite everything that was going on. Now do- it's. Uh, I was going to say, I do have some quotes about South Carolina, too. You do? Uh Uh-huh. 
Yeah, there was um, one from correspondent from the London Times that was staying there at the time secession was starting to go down. And he said, there is nothing in all the dark caves of human passion so cruel and deadly as the hatred the South Carolinians profess for the Yankees. And the state of South Carolina was founded by gentlemen. Nothing on earth shall ever induce us to submit to any union with the brutal bigoted blackguard of the new england states throwing some shade at you weeks you know what lucky i wasn't around back then Ooh. civil war started right then you know <laughs> you know fort moultrie you know that's the big fort now there's four forts there's fort sumter obviously fort moultrie there's a place called castle pinckney and a place mm-hmm. called fort johnson those are the four if you've ever been there they all surround the harbor right fort moultrie was the big one that was the one they all focused on. Ironically, it's really the one that was most vulnerable to attack. Like Sumter's on an island. This one isn't. It's just sitting there. It's commanded by a 67-year-old guy named John, Colonel John Gardner. It's almost like that's the job you got when you retired and just sat in front of yeah. the chill on the beach. There was a guy named Lieutenant Theodore Talbot who was within his – he has a quote. He calls him the most utterly incompetent to command a post ever you know, even in the most favorable of circumstances. Sounds like your job review at the Dairy Queen right there in 2019, <laughs> Mary. He basically is someone who was put in position in Talbot. Was a, he, you know, he was a guy who went to California in the Rockies with John Fremont. And he had a little bit of history with those guys. But look at the people on his staff. So you have Gardner, who's 67. And the guys he had working under him were actually kind of the rising stars in the mm-hmm. Union Army, right? You've got uh, Admiral Doubleday. Yep. You may have heard of him. Okay. Vets of baseball, right? <laughs> And he was a he was a captain at the time. His lieutenant was Jefferson C. Davis. Oh, okay. So that's fun. General that. Reb. General Reb. Also, you had Captain Samuel Wiley Crawford from Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. He was there. He was a Northerner, but he always felt that the Constitution was being violated by the North for what they were doing. So he was kind of like this weird Southern Northern thing. You had a guy named Captain Truman Seymour who was on the Northerner. You had Talbot was his lieutenant, and Norman Hall was the other guy. He was like the quartermaster, but he was in charge of the commissary. So he was also the chef. You have a really incompetent guy in Gardner. You're not going to put him out west with Hancock, Albert Sidney Johnson, all those guys. You're not going to do that. You're going to put him somewhere where he can't get himself in trouble, and that's what they did. Like the North doesn't seem overly concerned about what is brewing in the South. That's that's one thing that if you read like Sherman's memoirs from that time period, he's down at what would become Louisiana State University where they built a military academy and he's down there and he's not questioning anything at all about this. And by this point, I believe Buchanan's secretary of war is starting to ship ammo and artillery Mm -hmm. and guns down South. And again, Buchanan's administration is so corrupt that nobody is saying shit about this, that there's all this stuff flowing to the South or they're not questioning it. Well, what's amazing is there was so secession was on the mind of everybody in Charleston. Yeah. Right. Everybody. The secessionists, the Charlestonians, I guess that they call them, right? The militia people, they wore like blue clad uniforms. That was kind of like their thing, right? Mm-hmm. So they were starting to hang around Fort Moultrie and inspect and spy on it and just see what's up with it because it was not just a visiting place you go visit. Um, it made some of the soldiers nervous. There were some people who wanted these soldiers armed because they really weren't even armed. They were just there, right? And this is, you mentioned John Floyd, the Secretary of War. He was really the one who really was supporting of that. It was an interesting story, though. The Federal Armory was in Charleston, in across the water in Charleston. Floyd, he goes to the Armory and says, I need 40 muskets. Want 40 muskets to help defend these guys, okay? The mayor of Charleston says, yeah, what the fuck, go ahead, sure, no problem, right? Gardner, who's in charge of the fort, rejects the idea, says, no way 
you're not taking those damn muskets because in his mind, it's going to infuriate He's going to piss off the people. So he had a yeah. good sense of what was going on at the time. You know, Doubleday, ironically, on the date of the election, November 6th, 1860, he's going to go to the arsenal to get ammo. And he's told, he's stopped by locals and is like, if you walk out of here with ammo, there's going to be a hundred vigilantes are going to be on you. So you might not want to do it. And so he's like, all right, well, let's see. I'll take off the hell with this. Now, the election had just happened. So you knew that there was that understanding now with the politicians that if Lincoln had won, they were going to secede. So they knew it was going to happen. It wasn't announced yet. The Charlestonians, the militia people versus Fort Moultrie. This is a month before secession. There's that standoff. It's starting now, right? Yeah. So you knew, kind of knew what was going to happen. The troops at the fort were, were like, you could feel it. Something was going down to a point when it really got uncomfortable. And it, it, it builds from there. November 9th, 1860, just days after the election is the day that there's a resolution. It's called the resolution to call the election of Abraham Lincoln a hostile act, which states South Carolina's intention to secede from the United States. Shit just got real. It did. And so, you know, who comes down to pay a visit? is Fitz John Porter, Mary. Yeah. He's going to come down. He's going to, he wants to inspect Fort Moultrie and he's going to report back and he's going to say, this it's unguarded. It's unprotected. Fucked. It ain't good. They have no supplies. And he says, you know something? He goes, this Gardner, we got to get his ass out of here. This He ain't the guy. So uh, Floyd, Secretary of War, is going to visit Robert Anderson. We'll hear a lot about him soon. And he's going to want to replace Gardner. So it, it's, he's gonna, ultimately, he's going to do it. Floyd also gets advice from Winfield Scott. Not Hancock, not old Winnie, <laughs> Winfield Scott, okay? Say, listen, what you guys need to do, you need to get the hell out of Moultrie and get to Fort Sumter. That's just by the by, that's what I think you should do. So Anderson, who's from Kentucky, by the way, Mary, West Point, class yep. of 1825, who's going to be the teacher of Beauregard, an artillery school, you know, he's going to take over the fort on the 19th of, of November, 1860 which is the same date as the Gettysburg Address, in case you're curious. Yes. In case you want to look that one later. up, right? <laughs> you look that later. one up if you don't believe me, okay? <laughs> so he's going to begin to get Fort Moultrie in shape. He also wants to defend nearby Castle Pinckney, which is right on the corner from there. But he has to do it secretly. He can't just do it because it's going to piss these people off. So he knows. He's basically, picture him in a tiger cage, trying to slowly protect himself with the tigers all walking around like shit yeah. if i move quick they're gonna jump me that's the kind of mentality that they're in so because they're afraid if they get more reinforcements more weapons it's going to infuriate them and lead them to an attack the charlestonian militia guess what they want to do mary they want to attack the force right yep. they want to go they're ultimately stopped by benjamin huger of all people mm -hmm. he'll be fighting later on in the peninsula he actually threatens to join Anderson. He goes, if you militia attack, I'm going to go join Anderson and fight you guys. Because this is stupid. There's no way in hell you're going to do that. But again, the leaders want it. They want Fort Moultrie because they're hearing these rumors now of these federal reinforcements. But even they know the militia isn't prepared to attack. I mean, they can no. sit. They're like the loud guy at the bar who wants to, is going to fight, but he doesn't fight. He's all talk, no action. So, Well, if they attack, then they're not going to get what they want from Buchanan, right? And that's what they're trying to do. Right. Like they they're, have they're, to be, they're they have to be just as careful as what Anderson is having to be yeah, yeah. as well with this. They both have to walk a tightrope with this politically because yeah. they do, because they haven't seceded yet. Okay. There's all kinds of, you, you have Buchanan, who's a lame duck president now. You got this Lincoln guy coming. So December 7th, 1860, Secretary War Floyd is going to send old friend Don Carlos Buell down. And he actually makes it on time. Okay. He actually does. <laughs> so forward um, to Shiloh, right? Yeah, well, he definitely was. <laughs> 
So he has orders, secret orders that he wouldn't even write down. He tells Buell, you need to tell Anderson. He goes, and he tells him, just so you know, you can't write this order down because I'm afraid it's going to get out. So you know what Buell does? Fucking writes it down. He writes it down. Just like I would. Don't look at this. Okay, fine. He looks, you know, (laughs) he writes it down. He writes it down to cover his own ass because in case it goes bad, he's going to get blamed. The order basically says this, avoid conflict, okay? But you have to follow Buchanan's plan to hold federal property because that was the that was a marching order. So avoid a conflict, but defend the fort at all costs. Sounds a lot like take the hill of practical, doesn't it? It does. I was just thinking that it's like take that hill of practical, or do not bring on a general engagement. Exactly. But but that's the order he gets. But then he says he adds his own thing. He goes, just so you know, if I were you, I'd go to Fort Sumter. That was not order from Washington. That was his. He's just suspecting. He goes, look. If I'm you, if I'm you guys, you do what you want. You be you. You want to YOLO this, go ahead. But I think that's what you should do. The Charlestonians also want Fort Sumter. They, they want it as well because it's empty. And they begin to inspect the fort from a distance to see what opportunities they have. And it leads up to December 17th. And this is where it gets kind of funny though too, right? There's a guy named Captain Foster. He's a guy uh, from Moultrie. He wants to go back to the Charleston Armory and he wants two muskets. Do you remember before the mayor had authorized 40 muskets? Yep. Right? So- he goes and he says, I like two muskets, please. And a guy named Captain Frederick Humphreys says, I can't give you two muskets, but I can give you 40, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so he's like, yep. So he takes the muskets and what he does, and he's going back on the mayor's orders, but he's like, hey, the mayor said four, take the freaking 40, right? Um, these are the muskets that Gardner had originally rejected. Here goes old Captain Foster walking out of the armor with 40 muskets, okay? And he's going to get, he's going to get, he's going to make it back. Mm-hmm. The next day, a guy named John Schnurl, it's a fun name to say, Schnurl, okay? he's the head of the Charleston militia. He's going to stumble into the arsenal. He's going to say to Humphreys, hey, um, did you give him 40 muskets? And he's going to say, yep. And he's going to say, here's the deal. If you don't get those back, there's going to be shit going to go down here. So you better get them back. So Humphreys is like, Fuck. all right. He goes, all right, I'll get the muskets back for you. I'll get them back. So he goes and asks Foster, he goes, hey, listen, um, remember those muskets I gave you? Um, any chance I can get those back? And Foster is pissed. He's like, Foster goes to Anderson and says, what should I do? He goes, give them back. He goes, well, you weren't supposed to get them. You're not supposed to start a fight. This is going to cause a problem. So Foster goes, okay, fine. He's going to wire Washington because he's pissed. He goes, just so you know what happened. And Washington Floyd says, he's right. Give the fucking things back. <laughs> he's out of your freaking mind. Give him back. So he's going to go ahead and give him back. The muskets do end up back there. That's kind of the situation that they're in. A couple of days later, it's the 20th of December. You know what happens yep. that day? Right? Shit hits Party the time. fan. It's right. time for them to decide. We don't want to be part of this union you know? anymore. And they secede. Yeah. So South Carolina becomes the first state on December 20th, 1860. 1860. So Pickens, the governor, now finds himself the head of a nation in his mind. Which former congressman James L. Pettigrew described as South Carolina is too small for a public and too large for an insane asylum. He's right. Still, it still applies, by the way. (laughs) So so he's summing it up there. So now Pickens... He's the governor of South Carolina. He's the president of, of whatever, okay? And for about a month of their own nation, like I said, until the other states join him, he's going to take out his pen and he's going to write a letter to his peer, President Buchanan now. He's going to basically say, listen, um, how about you just hand over Fort Moultrie to us? Just just, 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 give, just give it to us because you know, no one wants any shit. If you give it to us, it's probably going to quiet the people in this town down. It's going to reduce tension. Everything's going to be cool. But then he goes, otherwise... 
I can't answer for the consequences. So Buchanan goes, fuck you. Yeah. He's like, what? So he gives his veil threat. Jefferson Davis, the future president, and John Slidell, who were still at the centers of the time, find out about this letter and they ask Pickens, you gotta retract this freaking message. You can't, you can't do that. I don't know if you meant the veil threat, but regardless, you know, you're gonna you gotta do it. Buchanan, going back to previously what he had said, he's, you know, he wasn't going to take action against South Carolina or any state per his previous messages because he wants to avoid the conflict. He, he just does. But he knows he's, he knows he's got to do something. And Anderson, soon after secession, he requests reinforcements from Buchanan. He does. He does. He never sends, Buchanan never sends him reinforcements. And this is because there's a there's some delegates in Washington from South Carolina visiting mm-hmm. Buchanan to keep trying to negotiate, you know, to get these forts. And they say, if you don't send him re- reinforcements, we promise we won't attack him until after the negotiations, basically. Like, we'll mm-hmm. keep things peaceful until after we get a decision, which is going to be you giving us the fucking forts. What it's going to ultimately end up with is going to end up with Buchanan sending people. He's only going to send 163 guys. I don't know how mm-hmm. the hell he came up with that number, but he sent 163 guys down. Pickens is going to find out about it. He's going to be concerned. Pickens is going to call up 10 militia regiments. You can see where this is going. He authorized them to use force if necessary. He considers Buchanan sending troops down as a provocation of war. Of course he does. So Pickens, he has a problem with Pickens though. You know, he's all ready to go and he's got, he doesn't, he's prepared. The armory in Columbia that he's going to arm these guys is 10 regiments. You know what they have in their armory? They got 30 pistols and they got a couple thousand antiquated muskets and three swords. That's all they got. Okay. So it looks like a bad yard sale. So they, have, they don't have any such a shit show. And, and I'm talking these John Brown muskets. I'm not, I mean, John Burns yeah. muskets. I'm not talking about the, the, the yeah. new stuff, the, the Enfields. He knows you know, I can't attack. So what he's going to do is he's going to take a hundred guys. He's going to put them on these steamers and he's going to send them up and down the river, just sailing by. But he's doing it as a show of force to the union, not union yet, but yeah. the, the, the federal guys. Yeah. And the men are seeing these guys go by in the steamers. They're probably giving the finger. They're just, but they, they're yeah. seeing, they're seeing, what they perceive as troops on boats going up and down, looking at them. So now they're, they're, they're going to get nervous. I mean, this is still, they're not ready for this yet. Anderson is, is really nervous about these Charlestonians attacking. They're seeing preparing for attacks. They're, they're building ladders to climb the parapets. They, they, he, they know that it's coming. So now it's Christmas day and he's thinking, well, Buchanan is not giving me any orders. I see what's going on here. He's going to make this decision unilaterally himself to get the hell out of Dodge. Yep. And he's going to go to Fort Sumter. But he knows, though, if he does and he's seen going to Sumter, it's going to get this going to lead to an attack immediately. So he has to do it quietly. So what he does is he takes those families, the wives and the children. He sends them off quietly to, uh, to Fort Johnson, just sends them off. Even though the rebel spies see them doing it, they don't seem to make them they don't put one-on-one together to see him going anderson wisely though he begins to move some supplies from sumter to moultrie to throw them off so it looks like they're going to defend fort moultrie now right they don't know what to do with the weapons of fort moultrie because they can't really you can't really take them there was a weather issue around christmas time there's probably snow or something that's delayed them the 26th of december 1860 is the day he's going to hit they're going to move anderson doesn't even tell double day right Doubleday literally doesn't find out that they're going to move till 20 minutes before he moves. Doubleday is literally on his way to Anderson's room to see if he wants to have tea with him. And that's how he finds out. And Anderson's like, no, we're, we're getting the fuck out of here. No, we're like fucking gone. 20 minutes. Get your shit. We're gone. Yeah. You know? 
So he's going to send his troops in two waves, Company E and Company H. So Double Day is in charge of Company E. He's going to go first. He's going to have Jefferson C. Davis stay behind to man the guns and fire on any ship that attacks on him at this point. And then if Company E makes it safely, they're going to send Company H to follow him along. So, And then once those people are all safely, they're going to spike the guns. They're going to take those tubes, stick them in the things, crack them off. They can't be used. And they're going to burn the carriages yeah. because they don't want the rebels to get them. So both ways actually make it no problems. They make it by 8 p.m. They're all at Fort Sumter on the 26th of December. Buchanan finds out about it and he's pissed off. Yeah. And Anderson's like, I don't give a shit. Yeah, no Anderson's cares. hailed as a hero in the North. Yeah. And he is the Charleston Mercury said that Anderson had incited civil war by doing this, which it's like basically a gigantic, you know, Anderson is getting no direction. This is a gigantic mm -hmm. fuck you to South Carolina. You hear the drums beating and you know yeah. we're going to be attacked. Like, get the, hell, get the hell out of here. So yeah. he does. The Charlestonians, to your point, they see it as an act of war. They're pissed off. Mm -hmm. You know why they're mad? Because they burnt the cannons. They considered a yeah. destruction of public property. What? That that's what not, that's what they're mad at. Union guys just leave Fort Moultrie in shambles, so they can't use it. Yep. And so now the troops are on Fort Sumter, and they're kind of literally Mary on an island, yep. right, with limited supplies, and that's going to lead to the reinforcement effort that's going to come. He's been told to get them out there because that is probably the best place for them to be, because if they stayed at Moultrie they are more subject to attack from, say, Sullivan's Island. So where Fort Moultrie is, if you had to resupply Fort yeah. Moultrie, there's no way you could do it without, without going right by them. See, no. Sumter's out there a little bit, yeah. right? So you can do it easier. It's not easy, as, you'll, as we'll find out. So mm -hmm. Winfield Scott, he's still kicking around with this. They're trying to figure out a way to get the supplies to them without getting attacked. So they come up with this idea mm -hmm. of using a civilian ship, yeah. which is actually pretty smart. Yeah, it takes some convincing though, like Buchanan at first doesn't want to do it. And then finally, General-in-Chief Scott convinces him that this needs to be done, but he's got to do it covertly as possible. As you said, they get like, like a civilian ship. So they get like a merchant ship called the Star of the West. He's going to send 200 soldiers as well as supplies to hopefully get to Fort Sumter. But since we're getting close to the beginning of the Civil War, it wouldn't be the Civil War without something turning into a clusterfuck. And that's what this does, because as he's trying to be covert, it gets leaked into the press. The one person that doesn't know about it is Anderson. Yeah, he doesn't know about it. And what's funny, you know what the press, one of the things the press hits them on? The fact that the guy who owned the Star of the West was charging the government 1250 bucks a day for it. So he was of ripping course, them off. Of course. I mean, and so that, that's what that's one of the things that makes the newspaper. He's like, can you believe how much they're charging them for this? And so it does make the press. Um, the rumors do make it down. So January 5th, 1861 is when it actually starts. The boat uh, leaves New York City, but the rumors are coming. So a couple of days later, to your point, the Mercury, the, uh, Charles the Mercury gets it. They get the story that the transport ship is coming and it's going to arrive the next day. So the next day, they're waiting. Here comes the ship. There's a guy named Peter Stevens, who's a gunnery person, who is going to be in charge of the artillery. He is going to fire a warning shot at the boat. And it's going to go over their head. And then he's going to fire a couple of actual shots at him. And they say these are the first shots of the Civil War, yeah. by definition. Yeah. To who's ever ride, driving that boat says, nope. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> We're going back out to sea. So they get within sight of Fort Sumter. I mean, if this were a movie, they would get there. There'd be bombs going off. We yep. made it. We made it. But nope. They go to see you later. Exactly. They turn around. And they're going to turn. They're going to head back. 
and so they're never going to make it and anderson's going to be left there on, on again by himself and yeah um and so that the plight of richard anderson with that and to your point it's not like he knew they were really coming uh, i'm sure yeah. he i'm sure he had an idea he probably well, he probably eventually heard the rumors right but just the way i read it it was like they did he was like everybody else knew but him he was the last person to find out and yeah to your point like these are considered to be like possibly the first shots of the civil war that are fired here um anderson does not fire back though he does not respond because obviously it's not him being fired upon it's the the vessel that is supplying him or going, mm-hmm. supposed to be supplying him. Anderson is not going to get the supplies that he needs. And so time is now running out and you have an administration in Washington, D.C. that is known as a lame duck administration. Mm-hmm. And Buchanan just, he's basically to the point where he doesn't want to deal with it. He's got a couple months left in office before Abraham Lincoln is inaugurated as president. And he's just one of these things where he's like, what else could I deal with right now besides this shit that's happening in South Carolina? And so he ultimately dumps this in Lincoln's lap, right? So yep. you've got a fed, you've got a federal garrison stranded on an island of Charleston who is being fired upon if you try to get them out of there. They're not, they can't fire back because it's an act of war. Certainly can't take the first shot. They can't fire on Charleston. No, they, they can't. So they've got to sit there and wait for the inevitability that ultimately is going to come on April 12th. That we'll talk about in a future episode when we talk more about, about Sumter. But what it really does is it leaves Lincoln, he's taking over at the beginning of the job with a country that has been teetering on oblivion for about 40 years. That's been simmering, yeah. just waiting for a fight. And what they're waiting for is that flashpoint. It was inevitable it was going to happen. It started with the Tariff Act, if not sooner, worked its way through all the 1850s with all the slave stuff. And it led to a point of the line was drawn in the sand. Like so many wars that began, it just needed that one flashpoint. Yeah, that's what's going to happen, as you said, in, in April of 1861. Lincoln, after he gives his first inaugural address, he, he goes into his office and there's a letter waiting for him. And it is from Robert Anderson. And he's saying, hey, I'm here in this fort. By the way, I have six weeks left of supplies and then I'm fucked. Could you please help? And that's what Lincoln starts off his presidency with is that he's known what's happening, but as the incoming president, he doesn't have the power to really do anything. They're totally at the mercy of the Confederates, the rebels at the time, because Anderson could not simply attack. They have to wait. They knew that when they tried to supply them in January, that they were fired upon. Mm -hmm. So they knew they'd be fired upon again. So they had to wait for the rebels to make the first act. Yeah. They had to do. Yeah. And it, it was a, it's a real shitty position to be in if you're Lincoln and you're the, the, the Union because you have no choice. You're at the absolute mercy. It will obviously lead to uh, the Civil War thing. I've heard about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. The little yeah. bit of a fight that happens. Yeah. yeah and I can't, like, they're in a really tough spot. And Lincoln has said in his, his inaugural address, you know, it's up to you, my dissatisfied countrymen, you know, basically saying the South, you're calling the ball is in your court. What you do right now, we don't want war. Um, now, at this point, as you said, the point you made at the beginning, these militias that have formed up, you know, not just in South Carolina, but in Virginia as well. Well, the one that is formed in South Carolina in Charleston is now being commanded by a man named Pierre Gustave Toutant. Gustave Toutant. Uh, Beauregard. Or Beauregard, as we call him <laughs> on the podcast. He yeah. is sent there by Jefferson Davis to be in command of these troops. And he is the man that is going to be command in command in April of 1861 when the first shots are fired of the civil war. And so we'll talk in more, obviously more detail about that, but what it ultimately does is sets the stage. 
But again, it's like a comet you see coming from miles, yeah. right? They didn't, they didn't, or they couldn't stop it. I think there was too many variables, too many balls in the air one time to, to prevent this. I don't think anything could have been done to prevent it just because the seeds were sown decades and decades before, and they just become more and more and more pressure filled. Ultimately, the, the election of Lincoln was really the flashpoint. But mm-hmm. it was, uh, as you talked about, Mary, this, this has been in the works for a while. Since 1850, yep. they were talking about this. It actually goes all the way back before that to John C. Calhoun that we mentioned at the beginning of this, where he told these people and put in the national mindset, if there's a law passed you don't like, you don't have to follow it. And as a matter of fact, you can leave if you want. And that's what a lot of these guys hung their hats on. So, and you know, if you know you're in a, you're in a shitty party, you don't want to be there. And someone tells you, look, if you want to leave, just go. And things go bad, you go, right? Yep, exactly. That's kind of how they, how they think. Yep. And that's, and the, the other thing too, is the, just the, the, um, the stuff that is said about secession by certain people, you know, that are quite prominent in politics in the U.S., like Sam Houston, for instance, from Texas, he said that to secede from the union and set up another government would cause war. If you go to war with the United States, you will never conquer her as she has the money and the men. If she does not whip you by guns, powder and steel, she will starve you to death. It will take the flower of the country, the young men. So he's saying that this is why secession is bad. It's going to cause a war. Like they're, these are the men that are predicting the war. Clearly Buchanan doesn't want to think about it, but men like Sam Houston are, uh, as we know, William Tecumseh Sherman, who is in Louisiana at the time when secession mm-hmm. happens, he is very angry. And he says to his friend Boyd, you guys don't know what you're doing. This country will be drenched in blood and it is folly, madness, and a crime against civilization. He's saying that the North can make a steam engine, locomotive, a railway car, hardly a yard of cloth or pair of shoes can you make. You are rushing into war with one of the most powerful, ingeniously mechanical and determined people on earth right at your doors. You are bound to fail. And he says that it's going to be like a long drawn out affair as well. And this is in December of 1860 that he's saying this. So this is, you know, four months before the Civil War even begins that, you know, Houston and Sherman are saying these things that they're able to predict what is going to happen because they're seeing it as you said the seeds have been sown long ago and it's like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode you know it's like the battles of the civil war they don't just happen they're stepping stones towards them that lead to each one we'll talk more about this again and we'll talk more about the the secession documents about some of the things they did a lot of the stuff that's still around now about what's caused the civil war about the the slavery versus non-slavery it's pretty clear when you read the secession documents what it was about and when you talk specifically about states' rights, Mm -hmm. the first thing they wanted to do was set up a strong Confederate national government. So it's a lot of inconsistency what people say, but we'll talk about that in the next episode when we talk beer guard. We'll talk about guys like Evan Ruffin. We'll talk about the actual union that dissolves Mm -hmm. uh, secession documents. And then what happens after Sumter with the other states leading, Lincoln calling up the reserves leading to more states seceding, and that really gets the ball going. It's a good setup to that, to mm-hmm. understand that whole national mindset and the national mood heading into that. And to your point, like these battles, the steps that lead to it, there was a lot that led to this. This wasn't just a situation of 1860 pops and the election happens, oh, Lincoln sucks, we, we can't do it, we're, we're leaving. This has been building for a long time mm-hmm. and is a, there's a lot of good stories behind it. So I think it's a good pride place to drop yep. and begin. I think understanding um, what the, the genesis of secession was will help as we talk probably in April when we get back to, we'll talk about what happens then as far as the, the you know, the, 
the battery in Charleston and the, the Fort Sumter and the guns. And we'll talk more about that. But I think it's a good place to, to finish. I think um, I think it's an interesting spot when you learn about the beginning. It's always fun to look at how stuff was created yeah. to help people understand what happened after that. Yeah, because there's so much that goes into this. And there's so much violence before the Civil War even happens that needs to be remembered and talked about. You have Bleeding Kansas. You have you know, what happens with John Brown, like there's all this stuff, the caning of Charles Sumner, like it's the Civil War is not the only violent thing in this story. There's so much violence leading up to it as well. What's next on the horizon for us? So next week, we have our episode about our Valentine's Day episode, which we're going to talk a little bit about Valentine's Day and the Civil War, maybe talk a little bit about some famous Civil War couples. And then we are going to do some dating profiles of generals. Ooh, that sounds risque. Yep. And then uh, the week after that, we will be talking about Fort Donaldson and Fort Henry. So we are going to be back in the Western Theater again. There's a little bit of debate if we were in the Western Theater tonight. Yeah, either one. But it's going to be good to talk about battles. <laughs> We've been talking about a battle a long time. So. I know. Yeah. Except the, the battle that you gave on me before we started this thing. Oh, you, you know. God, he's such a drama oh. queen. I swear oh, to God. Oh, jeez. Anyway. So anyway, so that'll be fun. So what we'll do, uh, we'll talk about this on our live next Saturday, and then we'll talk about the Valentine's Day episode. I'm sure that'll be a lot of fun. Yep, as well. and head on over to our website too, civilwarbreakfastclub.com. We have a forum over there, and there's um, quite a few people that are quite active participants, and there's uh-huh. a lot of interesting discussions that are going on. Just a reminder, we have our book club coming up. The meeting will be March 31st, but you can still join us. We are reading Black Iron Mercy for the first one um, by Eric Schleinlein. Hope I'm getting his name right, which is an excellent book. Already had some great feedback on it from some of our listeners. That's a very, that's a very good book. That's a good, perfect balance of story and history. It's just a great, great read. Yeah. Oh, and then on the 17th of this month, so two weeks from tomorrow night, we will be having our fifth civil war breakfast club round table. So if you've never been part of that before, it's just, we just get together for about an hour, an hour and a half and talk about the Civil War, whatever comes to mind. So if you've never been part of that before, just send us an email, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com, and we will be sure to get the Zoom invite to you. And that's from 6 to 7 p.m. or Wednesday, February 17th. That was a early, it's a short month. So anyway, Mary, but this is a great time as always. Always a good time to talk about some of our some of our old friends back in the 1850s and 60s. Always fun to bring up old John C. Calhoun again. We'll talk about him in a while. But in any case, so we'll look forward to talking to you soon. We'll look forward to talking to everybody else soon. So thanks again for listening. We appreciate the support as always. And we look forward to seeing you at the live, hopefully on Saturday. Mary, we'll catch up with you down the road. Behave yourself and stop being so grumpy. <laughs> Fucker. Have a good night, everybody, and thank you for your support. Great for Darren. <laughs> Jesus. See you guys later. <laughs> Bye. <Peace out>. Bye. <laughs>